if you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation 1, because we're going to continue in this series on the book of Revelation. And today, it is my great, great honor. I've been looking forward to preaching this message all week. It is my great honor to introduce to you the star of the show. We're going to see the first scene of Revelation open up. And as you can imagine, a spotlight kind of in center stage. We are going to meet the star standing in the center of the stage with the spotlight illuminating him for the whole world to see. Now, I want to reiterate something I said last week, all right? It's very, very important that we get this. You're going to see that the star of the show of Revelation is not the Antichrist, It's not the beast, right? You can read some Christian literature and watch some Christian movies and almost get the impression that the star of Revelation is the Antichrist or the main character of the, I guess they wouldn't say the star, but the main character of the show is is the Antichrist. And Revelation 1 is going to show us that is categorically untrue. The star of the show is Jesus. Now, I want to say one other thing before we get into the the reading of of God's word is that you're going to notice that this Jesus looks a little different than the Jesus you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's going to look different, but let me assure you, this is the same Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's just dressed differently. He's just wearing different clothes, but but he is is the same Jesus. You may know the story of, of the Bible goes like this. Jesus is in heaven in his glory, He takes off his glory, he puts on his humanity, he's born of a woman, he lives a perfect life, he goes to a cross, he he dies on that cross, three days later he resurrects, he spends a few days kind of establishing the church, and then he returns to heaven, taking off his humanity and putting back on his glory. And so the Jesus we're going to see in Revelation 1 is Jesus in all his glory, This is the Jesus that we get one tiny little glimpse of him in the story of the transfiguration in in the Gospels. But really, that's about it. So this Jesus is going to look different, but he just looks different. It's the same Jesus. He's just in different clothes. So I want to show you the star of the show in Revelation 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom uh, and and patient endurance that, uh, that are... Ours and Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and then he placed his right hand on me and said, I I love this so much, do not be afraid. (laughs) Easy for you to say, right? (laughs) Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, <coughs> what you have seen, what is 
now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So today's sermon is all about Jesus. It's, it's one of my favorite things to get to, to get to do. But I want you to notice verse 10. And I want you to notice, first of all, in this text, how Jesus sounds. All right, verse 10. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, in the first century, they didn't have alarm systems or anything like that. And they lived in fortified cities. So if your city was getting ready to come under attack or your city, a fire had kind of caught in your city and it was spreading around the city, if they needed to alert the public in some way, somebody would climb to the top of the wall of the fortified city and they would sound the trumpet. The trumpet got kind of associated with a loud sound. And in verse 15, John describes Jesus' voice in this way. He describes it as rushing water, again loud. Now, Now here's the deal. While Jesus' voice is loud in this text, he's not angry and he's not yelling. As a matter of fact, the first thing he says to, to John is, do not be afraid. So his voice is loud, his voice is projecting, but he's not angry, he's not yelling at John. So why on, why on earth is his voice described as loud? And let me explain it to you this way. My wife and I, we have an almost three-year-old, all right? And Cheryl will tell you, and I'll tell you about Cheryl, that neither one of us are really much of, we don't yell, all right? We're not, we're not really much, of, uh, much for the whole yelling thing. Even when I get angry, you're more apt to see me cry before I'll yell. Right, as a side note, if you ever see me start crying, eh, you know, all right, um, I like to hold that in as a man type of thing. But um, when, so when Sam needs to be told kind of what to do, you won't find us yelling at him, but we do put on what we call our parent voice, all right? And, and we'll look him in the eye and we'll raise our voice up a little bit and we'll say this, Samuel Stephen Higgs. And he knows, all right, oh, Samuel Stephen Higgs, they never call me that, right? Our voices raise, our eyes get a little intense. What are we doing in that moment? We are communicating to them, to him, who has power and who has authority in this household. This is what Jesus is doing in this text. He's not angry. The first thing he says is, do not be afraid. He's not angry. He's communicating to John, all power and all authority is mine. And this had to be so comforting to the Christians living in the first century. Because as I talked about last week, they were living under the rule and reign of a guy from the line of the Caesars named Domitian. Domitian tortured many Christians. He was a Caesar. They actually had a law in in the occupied Roman territories of the time that when you went into the marketplace, they would greet you there and they would say, Caesar is Lord. And you were required, before you could buy and sell, you were required to say, Caesar is Lord indeed. And so this must have been so encouraging to them to hear there is one whose voice is like a trumpet. There is one whose voice is like running water, and he has the ultimate authority. Domitian may have some responsibility. Domitian has responsibility. He is responsible for leading the nation, but ultimate authority is not him, and it's not his. There is one who is over Caesar. There is one who is over Domitian. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate in this text. He's he's projecting. His eyes are like fire. We'll talk about that again later. His eyes are like fire. He's he's talking loudly. He is communicating all power and all authority belongs 
to me. And again, I can't imagine how encouraging this must have been to these Christians living under the rule of Domitian. And listen, when they heard Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Domitian is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. The ramifications of that are staggering. Let me give you just a few of these. One is, um, if that's true, if Jesus is Lord, if he's over Domitian, here's kind of staggering ramification number one. Then, Then here's this truth. Domitian is in power then because God allows him to be in power, right? If Jesus is Lord and he is over Domitian, then these early Christians kind of walked away with this idea that then Domitian is in power. It's not that God likes everything Domitian's doing. Don't hear me say that, because surely God didn't. But Domitian is in power because God, who is over him, God allows him to be in power. Think of how difficult this was for the Christians of the first century to hear. But here's the Bible's point on this, and you'll read this in other passages of Scripture. Domitian and Caesar and every other world leader since is due a certain amount of respect just for that. That they are in power because God has allowed them to be in power. This is why the Bible says, respect and submit to the governing authorities. And Peter will go on to make this argument. I was just reading this the other day. That they are there because God allows them to be there. Here's another kind of staggering truth. If Jesus is Lord and Domitian is not Lord, if Jesus is over Domitian, then here's staggering truth number two, I think, is Domitian will answer to God for how he rules. Right? And this must have been encouraging to the early Christians. So it's like, okay, Domitian is going to be held accountable. He's going to be held accountable for what he did. He's going to be held accountable for how he ruled. He's going to be held accountable for all the Christians that he murdered. Domitian will be held accountable. Here's truth number three. If what I said is true, that Jesus is Lord and Domitian is not Lord, this is actually just a sub-point in the sermon. Don't think this is the whole sermon, right? Okay, how long are we going today? Long time, it's okay, all right? Um, God's will trumps Domitian's will. Now, Domitian has been given some free will to rule and reign by God. He's been given to that, and even in Domitian's stupidity, God can use even the stupid decisions to accomplish his will. But here's the point of this. When God decides something must happen, Domitian can resist, Domitian can pull together the most powerful army in the land. Domitian can do any number of things that will all end in failure because when God decides, God's will is supreme. And so the the Christians just long for this day uh, of the day that God would decide Domitian's rule was going to come to an end, and eventually it did. And there was, hear me, there was nothing Domitian could do about it. Once God had decided Domitian's will is secondary to God's will. And I wonder if we need to hear this a little bit today. Because here's what I know is true for some of you in this room. You hate your boss, the person that's in authority over you. Or you hate your parents. Or maybe the, the government right now, maybe our worldly, earthly government has you down right now. But listen, a couple truths. They are in power because God allows them to be in power. On that level, they are to be respected. They will answer to God for how they governed, just like Domitian will. If in their free will they do something stupid, God can even use stupid decisions for his glory. God can use it for good. And when God decides something, there's nothing that can be done about it. God's will will be supreme. And Revelation teaches us at the end of the day. So Jesus is speaking with authority 
because he has all authority. He's speaking with strength. He's speaking with loudness. Now I want to show you where he is. I love this so much. Verse 12. John hears a loud voice, and he turns around as you would to see who's speaking to them, and he sees Jesus there, and he's within the seven golden lampstands. And he tells us at the end of the text that the lampstands represent the churches that Jesus is going to address over the next couple chapters. And Jesus is among the churches. This is so encouraging to me. Because after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus promised he'd never leave us or forsake us. And this text is demonstrating to us that he kept his promise. Jesus is among the churches. Jesus is among the people of the church, encouraging them, loving them, motivating them to good deeds. deeds. Jesus is at work within us, and, and, and he's at work in this place, and he's at work within your, your life in particular. I, I think it's so important that we understand how important the church and the people of the church are to Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. I don't know when this happened. Maybe, maybe it's been my entire life and, and, and maybe it's not, but at some point it became like fashionable to complain about the Big C Church. Right? Everybody thinks the Big C Global Church is failing, that we've dropped the ball, that we're a bunch of screw-ups. Everybody loves to complain about the church. Where do you find Jesus? Jesus is among the church. Jesus is among the church. He loves the church. He works within the church. He loves the people of the church. Don't ever, because we're going to go on to see in chapters 2 and 3, these churches are hugely messed up. If you thought the church you came from was messed up, I promise you these churches are more messed up. They are messed up churches. Jesus is among them. He's among them. He's among the messed up churches, helping them and motivating them because he loves them so much. So that's where Jesus is. We're going to, I didn't want to steal too much thunder from next week because we're going to talk about the church next week. But now I want to show you what Jesus looks like because this is the good stuff. Verse 13. Jesus is described, all right? You want to know what resurrected Jesus looks like? Here's what John says. He looks like a, a son of man. And I say, well, that seems like a no-brainer because aren't we all sons of a man? That's not exactly what he's talking about. This title, the son of man, has its roots to the Old Testament. I want to put up a, a passage from Daniel on the next slide. And here's Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus. Here's what Daniel writes, a couple hundred years. In my vision at night, uh, I, I looked, and there before me was one like the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given, look at this, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is the everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So, few hundred years before Jesus, Daniel predicts that there's going to be this coming of a son of man who would become the central figure to our redemption and salvation. That our sin, ever since the garden in the book of Genesis, our sin had separated us from God. We are created to be in a relationship with God, so that creates a problem. We need salvation from our sins, and Daniel says the son of man will come, and he will have authority and glory and power, and everyone will worship him, and Jesus in this moment is saying, that's me. That's me. I am the son of man. You know, when we talk about Jesus, most often we refer to Jesus as the son of God 
because we like to think about him and his deity. You know, Jesus actually rarely called himself the Son of God. He did a few times because he is the Son of God. Did you know that Jesus most often referred to himself? You can check this out. He most often referred to himself as the Son of Man. Why? He's pointing to Daniel who predicted that there would be a man born who would be the central figure of our salvation and our redemption. And Jesus, more often than any other title, referred to himself as the son of man because he was referring back to Daniel saying, that's me. And the people rejected Jesus. And here's, here's why they rejected him. They say, this is the son of Mary and Joseph. This doesn't look anything like the guy that Daniel was talking about. And now it it is as if Jesus is appearing to John saying, what do you think of me now? Right? I look a little more like him now, don't I? Right? Because Jesus in, in his... In, in his resurrected state, he, he shows that he is the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. And if you've ever wondered what the Son of Man looks like, check out verse 13. Uh, what, how he's dressed, I don't know if you ever wonder what he dresses like. He tells us, verse 13. He's dressed in a robe that reaches down to his feet, and he has a golden sash around his chest. This is how a high priest would have been dressed. And this is so, it's so important to me that you understand this because I was talking to some people this week about, um, we, we've got people that are coming to Northwest now from a whole variety of church backgrounds, lots of different church backgrounds and, and, and lots of, of different church histories. And so I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page with this. All right? I, am, I am a pastor. I am your pastor, but make sure you understand this. I am not your pastor high priest. I'm not your high priest. The high priest's job in the Old Testament in particular was to stand for the people before God. He was the go-between between the people and God. So if you were a a non-priest in the Old Testament, you wouldn't ever enter into the throne room of God. You'd go find a priest, you'd confess your sins, you'd offer up your prayer requests, and the priest would go and interact with God on your behalf. He would go and kind of lift up your cause for the people. I am not your high priest. Jesus is your high priest. So some of you came from a religious background that taught you that you need a priest. You need a priest to go to God for you. You need a priest to pray for you. You need a priest to offer forgiveness for you. You need a priest to stand before God for you. And that's not true. When Jesus died and was resurrected, he became your high priest. And here's what this means for you. And this is such a beautiful thing if we could ever fully understand this. Here's what this means for you. You don't need someone to pray to God for you. You can pray to God because of Jesus. You don't need someone to offer you forgiveness and to stand before God and beg for your forgiveness. You can ask God to forgive you and be forgiven because of Jesus. You don't need someone to stand between you and God anymore. You can pray to him. You can be forgiven by him. You can walk with him every day because of Jesus. I'm your pastor. I want to help you and pray with you and love you. God's placed me in a position where I can do that. I am not your priest. I don't stand between you and God. You are free because of the work of Jesus to run to God and pray to God and interact with God and have a relationship with God. One of my favorite images of the cross is that when Jesus dies on the cross, all of a sudden there's a bunch of commotion and the the curtain that was in the temple separating God from the people, the curtain was torn in two, symbolizing you don't need a priest. You don't need a priest 
to pray to God. You can pray to God today through Jesus. You don't need a priest to forgive your sins. Jesus is your priest. He can forgive your sins. You don't need a priest to be a buffer between you and your heavenly father. Jesus is the buffer. He paid for your sins so that you are now free to enter into the relationship with God you were created to, to have. I'm happy to pray. For, I love praying for people. We offer that every week. I'm happy to pray for you. But I want to always make sure, because we offer this every week, come forward and pray with our, with our prayer team. I want to make sure that all of us understand you don't need a pastor to be heard by God. You need Jesus to be heard by God. And because he forgives your sins, you are able to have the relationship with him you were created to have. Let's see what the text goes on to say in verse 14. Does that make sense? It's always important to me that people understand this. You don't need a pastor or priest to relate to God. Because of Jesus, you can. He's your high priest. Verse 14. Jesus' head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. I turned, uh, this last January, I turned 38. And my family has been joking about the amount of gray hair that's in this region right here. Right? It's kind of, it's growing up and pretty soon it will be around, all right? Um, so it started growing. When I wear a ball cap, it looks like I'm totally and completely white. Now, if you're white, I want to give you the best comeback you could ever make to another Christian. Don't use this for non-Christian, but someone says, man, you're getting white. Read them this verse. Next verse. Ah, it's not on there. I'll just give it to you. Um, Proverbs 16, 31. Gray hair is a crown of splendor, it is attained by a righteous life. So here's what I always say to people. You know why I'm turning gray? I'm awesome. <laughs> Proverbs 16:31. Gray hair is attained by living a righteous life. I'm turning gray because I'm progressively becoming awesome. All right? You're gray because you're awesome. All right? That, that's, what, that's what the Bible teaches, all right? You can take it to the bank. Now, I'm kidding about me, and I'm, I'm kidding about you, but listen, I'm not kidding about Jesus here. This is why Jesus' hair is described white as wool, white as snow. He's awesome, all right? He's righteous, he's good, and he's wise. So we don't just follow him because he has authority, although that would be reason enough. We follow him because he's good, and he's righteous, and he's holy. This is why I, I have to always strive, and maybe you do too, that often my will will contradict with Jesus' will. And I have to remind myself, and maybe you do too, the reason my will so often contradicts with his will is because he's holy, perfect, and righteous, and I'm a sinner, so, of course, we're going to contradict, right? And, and my job as a Christian and your job as a Christian is to reject my will and my desire and to fully embrace Jesus' will and Jesus' desire because he has that crown of splendor. He has led a righteous life, and he knows what's best. Verse 14 goes on to say, his eyes are like blazing fire. His eyes are like blazing fire. You can tell a lot about a person by looking into their eyes. And the idea of fire in the Bible, it carries with it the idea of control. I explain it to people this way, that if you had a fire in a fireplace under control, that's an awesome thing, right? You can do s'mores. It always comes back to food for me. You can do s'mores right, in a fireplace, which my family will do sometimes in the winter. You can have a lot, a lot of fun around a fire, but when that fire gets out of the fireplace and it begins to burn out of control, it becomes a major, major problem. Jesus' eyes 
are fiery, not because he's angry. We think, oh, there's fire in his eyes. Jesus is mad at us. No, they're not on fire because he's angry. They're on fire because he is in complete control. The Bible's word for this is sovereign, that Jesus reigns above all things. It's so important that we understand this. Cancer is not sovereign. For the first century, Domitian is not sovereign. The United States, we are a sovereign nation, but the United States is not sovereign over all things. God is sovereign. The Son is sovereign. He rules and reigns over everything. And to show how he rules and reigns is the next image. It says his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. Now you have to understand that the feet in the first century were the symbol of strength. I've got size 15s, by the way, if you want to talk about symbol of strength, all right? Um, kidding. In today's kind of vernacular, if you were talking about somebody's strength, you'd say, look at that guy's arms, or look at that guy's legs. He's massive, or look at her, her arms, or whatever. She, she must work out, or whatever. We tend to talk about those body parts. In the first century, they would, it was the feet. And Jesus' feet are bronze glowing like a furnace, that he is reminding us in chapter one of Revelation that he is strong enough to do what needs to be accomplished. So it should be no surprise to us with all this imagery of Jesus and what he looks like. The very first thing he says in verse 17 is this. Do not be afraid. Because here's the thing, gang. As you read the book of Revelation, and we're kind of going through this thing together, we're, we're going to read two chapters every week. This is an 11-week uh, series, 22 chapters in Revelation, two chapters a week. So we're going to read two chapters a week. And as you read the book of Revelation, there's a temptation to get afraid because you're going to read about dragons and you're going to read about famines, and you're going to read about this Antichrist, and you're going to read about the, the beast, and you're going to find yourself thinking, shouldn't I be afraid? And Jesus says to you and to me, no. You should not be afraid, because you serve one whose feet are like bronze, whose, there's fire in his eyes. He wears a robe demonstrating that he loves us and he's our high priest. You should not be afraid because he's good and he's holy and he's righteous and he's in complete control. So there are times as you go through this life when you say, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm tempted to be afraid. Where is God? What is he doing? And John wants to remind us in the very beginning of Revelation that God is in complete control control and he's present with his people. I love how Jesus says this next. He says, do not be afraid. And here's why you shouldn't be afraid. Jesus always gives us the why. He says, do not be afraid because I am the first and I am the last. Jesus wants you to understand that he was there when the heavens and the earth were created. I don't know if you know that because he's not mentioned by name in Genesis 1, but he is mentioned by name in John 1, that he was present when the heavens and the earth were created. John tells us that he will be present when the end of all things in Revelation happens, and he will be present for every moment in between. When you get the cancer diagnosis, Jesus will be present. When the person who promised to be there always be there, when they walk away, Jesus will be present. When the layoff happens, Jesus will be present. When the Antichrist in Revelation shows up, Jesus will be present. When your child is born in the good times, Jesus will be present. When you get married, Jesus will be present. When you start your career, Jesus will be present. And he's powerful, and he's good, and he's in control, and he's present. 
He's present. We celebrated Easter two weeks ago. And this is why this matters so much that if Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus can be present. If he's still in the grave, not so much. But we believe he's alive. And this is why Jesus says in verse 18, I am the living one. I was was dead and behold, (laughs) you know, behold, I am alive forever and ever and ever. See, here's the thing. A powerful savior is an amazing gift. It is but a powerful savior that is present with you is better. A loving savior is incredible. A loving savior is incredible, but a loving savior that is present with you, that's a whole different thing. A a good savior is awesome, but a good savior who is present with his people is better. A God with a plan, a savior with a plan is incredible, but a, a God with a plan that is present in your life, helping enact that plan, It is better. And so John wants to make sure we understand as we go through this book of Revelation and famine strike and earthquakes come and Antichrist takes hold and all this stuff begins to happen. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because you serve a holy, good, and righteous Savior who's not just holy, good, and righteous. He's holy, good, and righteous and present with you. He's with you. And he's going to be with you every step of the way. So I want, one of the reasons I was so, I want to kind of close with this, I was so excited about this passage, is how clearly it shows us this, the glory of Jesus. That he is holy, righteous, and good, and he is present. And he's, he's just glorious in this chapter. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to think about Jesus only in his humanity, Jesus that that taught great lessons, that interacted with his disciples. Jesus that sparked a movement that changed the world. And he did those things. But I hope it's been so encouraging to you to see Jesus not clothed in his humanity, but to be clothed in his glory. Our high priest, our good, righteous, perfect, holy, glorious Lord and Savior, who says to you and me on this day, he knows what you're facing and he says this, do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am present with you. Rest in my power, wisdom, and strength. Do not be afraid. And so I was so excited about this because I I so want us to not be flippant with Jesus. And let me explain that. When I say don't be flippant with Jesus, I don't mean like not disrespectful. I'm confident that we're in church today because we don't want to be disrespectful about Jesus. When I say let's not be flippant about Jesus, I'm saying let's not underestimate him. Let's not just think about him as a good moral teacher. He is that, but he's not just that. Let's not think of him as someone who came in in humanity and and sparked a a movement and a revolution. He did that. Let's Let's not think of him. Let's think of him also in the way that Revelation describes him. High priest, good, glorious, righteous, king, savior, present with his people. And here's what I hope. Let his power encourage you. Let his wisdom inspire you. Let his righteousness comfort you. And let his strength sustain you. Will you stand? I want to pray. And then we're going to sing a song of invitation. And I'd love to receive you down front. If you've, especially if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ before. I want to talk with you and begin that journey with you. He is 
someone you can have faith in because he's not just good, holy, righteous, and perfect. He's good, holy, righteous, and perfect and present with his people. And that makes all the difference in the world. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, (coughs) we thank you so much for today. And we thank you for this look at Jesus in Revelation 1. Uh, We are grateful for it. Um, I pray, Lord, um, because I do, I believe we're, we're, we're currently in the end times, that those have been happening since Jesus returned. So I, I believe that. So as we're traveling the road that we're in, there are going to be days where we're tempted to be afraid. There are going to be days when we're tempted to think the enemy is winning. There's going to be days when we don't know where to turn. Would you renew our faith in Jesus the Son? Not just the the good teacher from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not not just the savior part, but this glorious part that sometimes we don't think enough about. Good, holy, righteous, perfect, incomplete control, and present with us. We thank you that he sustains us. We thank you that he encourages us. And we thank you that because of him, we need not be afraid. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Amen.